how many, is this on? Check, check. How many of you, raise your hand, this is one of those non-rhetorical questions, are only children? How many only children we got? One, very few, two, like three, four. Okay, very few. Okay. Only children. We should have like a lunch meeting to talk about the only child. I, I myself am an only child, um, have been my whole life. I mean, I guess, I guess my mom could still adopt, and, you know, nothing's out of their own possibility, but, but as far as I understand, I'm going to live the rest of my days out with, without, without a sibling. Uh, and there are pros and cons to being an only child, as only children will tell you. Uh, Christmas in your, in, is pretty awesome, because uh, the entirety of your household present budget goes to you, uh, which is pretty sweet. Uh, you, you get a lot of individual attention, but it's kind of a, it's a give and take, because the individual attention goes both ways. Uh, for all of those with siblings, every time you have gotten away with something growing up because you blamed your brother or sister for it, like if something broke or went missing in our house, like there was no point in lying. It was, it was me, right? Uh, later on, we, you know, we could blame the cats, but cats are way too finesse to like break stuff, you know, unless they do it on purpose because they're malicious and evil. Um, but, but, but generally, in case, if you're a cat lover, I'm really sorry. I love the idea of you having a cat, as long as I just don't have to have it. Uh, that's totally fine. But, right, I couldn't blame anybody. It was just me. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of downsides. The other downside is that there is, a, there is a beauty in the love and support of siblings that, you know, you see. Sometimes you don't see until those siblings become adults. But, you know, for those of you who have brothers and sisters who you're close to, you know that there's a camaraderie there. There's also a camaraderie in some ways against your parents when you're growing up. Like, I, I remember my rebellious teenage years, and man, I would have loved to have a, like, co-conspirator teenager living in the house with me that I could have somehow used, right? But, but only child syndrome is, you know, it's just who I am. Uh, I, I occasionally will drive my wife crazy because one of the things that happens when you're an only child is you don't have anyone to abuse growing up. And so when you get married as an only child, you, this is like the first time someone lives in your house that's kind of your equal, and so you tend to take all of the years of pranking that you've gotten to your siblings and you just start taking that on your spouse. Our first year, she, she had to say to me, like, I had a brother. I did the time. <laughs> it is now time for me to relax and enjoy my own house in the peace and quiet and comfort. And if you don't stop messing with me, bad things are going to happen to you. Um, she doesn't mess with me back very often because she knows that I'm a wicked, evil human being. And, and I, I have a policy of whatever you do to me, I pay back tenfold. And she's just, it's not worth the trouble because I'm very creative and very malicious if I want to be. And so, but, but only children, right? So I, this week I was reading about, you know, preparing for the psalm. I was reading through uh, a couple different commentaries and books. And one of them was, you know, a book by Eugene Peterson we've been referencing and talking through a lot called Along Obedience. And so th there's a phrase that came out in that reading that hit me more than probably everyone else in this room other than the three or four of you that raised your hand. Uh, and it's very, very small, but Peterson says this. He says, no Christian is an only child. Right? And if you have siblings, you go, okay, right, that's cool. But if you're an only child, that kind of hits you. You're like, wow, I do have brothers and sisters. And, and, and Peterson's not trying to be fancy or fun with his words. He means it. I get what he's saying. This isn't a new thing. We all know that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We know that that, that verbiage is used intentionally because of how close we are to be as, as God's people, right? So as you look to your left and your right past, you know, the spouse or 
or parents that you came with, you know, you see people that are your brothers and your sisters, and we are to, to be that way and treat each other as such. But I've just never heard it put that way, and it surprised me. It was kind of this, this sweet, pleasant thing in the middle of the week of, wow, oh, I guess I'm not an only child. Right? Sorry, Mom. <laughs> I have a whole bunch of brothers and sisters. And it's even better because you didn't have to raise them like me. Right? God bless my mom for, for dealing with me. Like age 15 to like 17. Ugh rough. Right? I'm going to pay for that dearly when Graham is, is born. The Lord's going to have something in store for me to, to get back at me for those years, that's for sure. But he actually elaborates. Peterson ends a, a quote that I want to look at this morning with this phrase, and the full quote is this. Our membership in the church is corollary of our faith in Christ. We can no more be a Christian and have nothing to do with the church than we can be a person and not be in a family. For God never makes private secret salvation deals with people. His relationships, it's a typo, relationships with us are personal, true, intimate, yes, but private, no. And then he ends that phrase with Christians are never only children. That's the full quote that he gives us. The Christian faith insists on living itself out within Christian community. If you have friends or you have felt this way at some point, and you're like, I'm a Christian, I just don't go to church. That isn't a thing. They're making it up. There's no such thing as a Christian that isn't living life within Christian community. Well, I read the Bible on my own and I prayed the prayer. The very nature of how God designs our faith to be and how God designs Christianity as, as Christ comes and dies and, and is risen and ascended and the church is born, it is made to be a communal faith. And if we look through scripture, the Lord very rarely deals with individuals for individual's sake. Right? There's times where he's like he's talking to Abraham or he's talking to Moses, but the end goal is never just to edify that one person. Right? It's not like God just picks one guy and goes, you and me are going to live in the desert and we're going we're gonna to get along and I'm going to teach you everything and you're going to do it. And Well, can I tell other people? No, you don't need to tell other people. This is your private faith. Right? God never does that. Whenever God speaks to one person in scripture, it's always to stir on a mass of people. Moses leads the Israelites out. Noah gathers people unto himself before the flood, and then afterwards, he, the, the offspring continues to grow into the, into the tribes. Right? Every single instance of Scripture where people are, are edified individually by God, it's for the purpose of larger community. That's how God chooses to work. And it is within that Christian community that we find belonging, yes, but something more. Within Christian community is where we find the, a word that is nestled in there, Unity. Come unity. We find unity. The concept of unity today is a really hard one for us to get our head around. And it's because the culture in a lot of ways has jacked it up. Right? It gets thrown around really loosely. We can unite around a whole bunch of things. Right? United for change. For what change? I don't know, just change. There's a whole lot of soccer clubs in Europe that are, seem to be very united for whatever reason, such as Manchester, <laughs> right? Like, unity is just this thing that we throw around. We have rallies for unity. I swear if I ever go to one of them and I go, well, what, united for what? 
community. The word is just so loosely used in our culture and in our world today that we just don't really have a grasp for what it means. But in the faith, in Christian faith, and as God ordains it, unity is not a buzzword. It's, it's not a thing that we can just kind of just throw around whenever we need to rally and hold some candles about something. Right? It's not something that we only get to just pull out when it's convenient, like world tragedies. And we think back to something like 9-11, right? Like everybody was united then, and then it faded away after that, after a few years. The unity just seemed to come and go as events transpire. It's not this fleeting, silly little thing. Unity in Christian faith and as God ordains it is something far bigger and far more important. And our psalm this morning focuses deeply on the idea of unity and what it is and how it works in the life of the Christian faith and church and people. So this morning, we're going to look at the second to last Psalm of Ascent. We're going to look at the last one too, but not in the sermon, because the last Psalm of Ascent is actually a benediction. So we'll use that as our benediction as we go on our way later today. But we're going to look at the second to last Psalm of Ascent. If you're wondering, Vince, you skipped a couple. Uh, I skipped a couple because either one, they, they become repetitive, so the themes repeat. Um, so there's some things, some psalms we didn't cover, but we talked about the concepts that are kind of alive within those psalms. Or they are concepts that we've just recently preached about. And so as, as I don't have, you know, 15 weeks to go through all of this, I kind of had to pick and choose every once in a while to skip one of the psalms of ascent. But I would encourage you to read them all. But today we're going to end our time in them by looking at Psalm 133. So I'd ask that you stand as we in the church stand. If you're new and you're wondering why do we stand, we, we, we stand just in a reverence of the word of God. It's not because we believe that there's some kind of power. It's not that we believe that the Holy Spirit floats about this high in the room and if you don't stand, your head won't hit him. There's nothing supernatural here. We just stand because we believe that God's word is holy and infallible in his. And it's a reverence thing. Right? If you've ever been to a, a concert at the end, people stand as a sign of extra reverence when clapping's not enough. Right? That's why we stand, because we believe that God's word is always reverent. So here we go. Psalm 133. Behold, it's short. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's the word of the Lord. Good, that was, that was good. You can have a seat. We'll get that. We'll get that more and more, you know, more and more as we go. But. All right. First off, this psalm is very short. Just three simple verses, but there's a lot of stuff in here. This is one of those times, man, Scripture is just packed densely. And you realize that the people who the Spirit inspired to write this stuff down, just every last little word is just chosen to drip with, with meaning and metaphor and understanding. So from the very outset, there are really four kind of parts to this psalm. There's a statement at the very beginning, that's verse 1, that is just a statement about unity, right? How good is it, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity? Statement number 1. Then, verse 2 to 3 and a half are these two metaphors that seem to describe what this unity is or feels or looks like, right? How, how good is it? It is, it is precious like oil on a head, and it's like the dew of Hermon. And if you're going, what? We'll get there. And then the closing, if you look at the very end, 3b, is just another statement about the idea of blessing and eternal life. Right? The Lord closes with 
for, where the, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Some places translate it life eternal. And so that's, that's where we're at here. We have this kind of sandwich of two statements surrounding two metaphors. And so we kind of have to unpack that a little bit. Verse 1, the psalm opens with the word behold. And I think we read behold in scripture a lot and we kind of just gloss over it. But it's a word that is designed, a sentence of its own in some way. Sometimes it's behold exclamation point, right? To, to capture the attention of something that is uniquely important or big as an idea. And you think about this, every word that God has written in scripture is incredibly important and edifying for reproof and for teaching and training in righteousness. However, sometimes the Lord calls special attention to specific things, and he does it through phrases like, behold. We know it's a big word, because if I used it in everyday circumstances, you would think I'm a tool. What if I finish the benediction? Behold, I'm going to get a donut. Right? You would think I'm weird. Like, who is this guy? Like, Behold, I must run to the restroom for a second. Behold, there's my son coming running like a crazy person. Right? We don't use words like behold unless there's something to actually behold. And so when we see that, it means we should pay special attention. This isn't just a, oh, this is a good thing. Right? This isn't like when you had your, your 4th of July barbecue and you were eating delicious meats and your family was around and you just went, ah, oh, this is nice. No, this is behold. This is a big statement that God is trying to make. It's a strong signifier that whatever is to come is a huge deal. And he says, I behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Right? The word brothers here, sisters, you're not excluded. It's just the way that biblical kind of writing and language worked at the time. Brothers is supposed to signify the whole of God's people. And so the phrase is behold how, how pleasant and good or good and pleasant it is. When the people of God, men and women who are God's chosen people, who are Christians, together united, are dwelling together in unity. Right? And the word choice in the sentence is not in any way unintentional. He says good and pleasant. And they sound the same, but they're not the same. And how do I know that? Brussels sprouts are good. Brussels sprouts are not pleasant. Barbecue is pleasant. Staying up late for my children is pleasant. But as you would attest, if you've ever spent time in my house and we do that, it is not good. Never good. Right? You see, things, things can be good and unpleasant. And things can be pleasant but not good. Those are very different constructs. And so for, for the Lord to tell us this, when we as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we dwell in true unity together, it is both good and pleasant. It is good in the sense that God loves it, God approves it, God wants it, he desires it for us, and it is good for us. Whether we liked it or not, right? We could hate being united together. We could be in unity and be like, this stinks. And it would still be good because God wants it for us. He desires it, and he thinks it's good for us, and he knows that it's good for us, and he trusts that when we are united together, it's good for the soul. It's edifying. We're better for it when we stand in unity together. But it's also pleasant in the sense that when we're united together, it is an immensely enjoyable experience to partake in. 
It is the kind of thing that when you get together with your brothers and sisters in Christ and you just, you have these experiences where you're just on the same page. This is why mission trips, by the way, feel so darn good when you're on them, right? Because you're just serving together. You're doing exactly what you are. You're united around Christ and moving forward in his kingdom, right? And you're just, it's just so good, right? You sit there at night and you're chatting with people and you're sharing a meal and you're like, man, could we just, could this be how it is all the time? Right? Because it's pleasant to us. So being together in unity, it is an important thing because we're supposed to behold it. It is brothers and sisters, the whole of God's church, all of his people. And when we're united, it is both a good thing and a pleasant thing. It's both. All right, so after describing this goodness and this pleasantness comes the how. And we get these two images of the how. The first is oil running down Aaron's head. And the second is the dew of Hermon. And what on earth do these things mean? They're very strange metaphors. It's not quite Revelation or Ezekiel level stuff, but it's pretty, pretty weird. And so we got to unpack these. The oil imagery of Aaron's head comes from Aaron the priest, the first priest that was ordained in Exodus 29. The Israelites are giving instructions for the ordination of Aaron and the priests by the Lord, and they follow them to the letter. And so all that we read, this, this precious oil, they are, they are called by God to anoint him with oil, and it runs down over his head, down his beard, on his robe. It's, it's the idea of the abundance of, and it's, it's a thing designed to consecrate, to separate, to designate, to ordain, and set apart Aaron and the others as priests. Right? So it's, it's ordination and royal and an important and anointing type of language. And so why, you know, why? It's this weird thing. Why oil? Well, oil is a thing in Scripture that signifies and stands for the presence of God. When I was a few, you know, a month ago or so, when I had my ordination service, one of the, one of the pastors, Betsy, who was here, that charged, gave the charge to me, if you were here and you saw her, um, Betsy is impressive in many ways, uh, the least of which that she at once beat me up when I was an intern at Memorial Park because she does Taekwondo and she's awesome. Uh, but, but Betsy gave me as a gift on my ordination day a, a vial of anointing oil from Jerusalem. She had traveled and brought it back as a gift. Because we, we, we anoint with oil sometimes, and if you ever feel like that's something that you need to have done, I would love to do that with you. You can just tell me, and we'll make a time, and we'll get together, and we'll, we'll pray over you. But we do that because it signifies God's presence. It's not snake oil. There's no power in the oil. We don't believe that it has miracle healing qualities, right? I'm not going to collect $10 for every time I oil you and heal your diseases. There's nothing intrinsically powerful about the oil. You know, it's not a magic potion, but it's a signifier. It's just a, it's like when we baptize. The water's not magic, but it signifies something, right? And so oil has this, this notion of the presence, but why would this psalm use the example of Aaron? There are so many times in scripture where people are anointed with oil. Why talk about Aaron specifically? And the reason is because this psalm depicts a priestly ordaining function of the oil. Aaron is set apart as a priest. And in the Old Testament, he was the one, he was the one, the high, the high priest, who would go into the Holy of Holies once a year with a rope tied around his ankle because it was believed that the presence of the Lord was so awe-inspiring and dangerous that you may not make it if you do something wrong in there. And so they would just be able to pull the dead body out so it wouldn't rot if, he, if Aaron screwed up in the Holy of Holies. 
He was the one that would go in. But after Christ came, the church institutes, we, we have something that God gives us called the priesthood of all believers. And we move from having one priest to all the believers of God being made priests. You, as God's people, are called saints. When we talk about the church triumphant, the people that are, are under God, that God has called unto himself, every single person, whether they are in the church, stepping foot in there right now or not, those who don't yet know Christ but will, what we, what we say, the phrase we use is, for all the saints. Did you know that? You're a saint. If you're a former Catholic, that might rub you a little bit, but you are. You're a saint. We should have days after you. As a matter of fact, our membership is in the hundreds. We could probably have a saint day for every one of us as members. Tomorrow, Monday, Saint Gwen Day. Let's make it happen, seriously. But no, we are all saints. And so the first, the thing here is the imagery meets the goodness and the pleasantness of brotherly unity in this way. Our unity should function in the sense that we see one another in a priestly way. I'm going to guess, maybe not most of you, but many of you, over the years, especially if you've been here for a while, chances are there are some people in this congregation that you love, and there's some people in this congregation that if they were to renounce their membership and move, you wouldn't be all that mad about it. Maybe they rubbed you the wrong way once 10 years ago, and you're still holding it. Right? Whatever it is, maybe you got in a spat two weeks ago, and you know, if, if they left, like you'd be upset because we lost somebody. But, but here's the thing. If you looked at that person, and you understood that they're not a nuisance to you, but that they are a saint. Things would change. I want you to literally look at somebody that's sitting around you for a moment and just say to them, you are an anointed saint of God. Go, actually say it. Thanks, Julie. <laughs> right? we, we are. We are people that are anointed by God. We are saints. And so the person that sits in the pew with you, the people that you share this church with, that you come here and fellowship with on Sunday morning, they're not just the person who is or isn't a certain way, or maybe it rubs you the wrong way, or maybe you just don't really know them that well. But they're a saint. They are a person who is anointed specifically, just like you are, by God for a priestly function. And so we are to be priests unto one another. That's our role. We should. We should serve one another. We should reprove and correct and love and care and, and cause one another to grow. We should be in the midst of each other's messes and speak life into them. Whatever you think the function of a priest is today in the church, you should be that to others around you and they should be that to you. That is what unity, true unity, is like, And if and when we live that out, when we do that well, when we see each other as priests and priestesses, right, unto ourselves, and as holy saints anointed by God, not just member so-and-so who sits in the fourth row that I never really talked to, right? If we looked at each other that way, that we truly saw each other as saints. Imagine if in the Catholic Church, like a saint came back to life and visited. Everybody would want to talk to them. Well, you're all saints. You should want to talk to each other. And learn of each other. And be in each other's worlds and blessings and messes and, 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 and issues and challenges. And work through them and love through them and preach through them. Preaching to one another. 
If the only preaching you hear in this church is from me or Mark in a Sunday school class or, or someone leading a Bible study at night, man, you got to do something. We ought to be preaching to one another the gospel every single day as priests. Right? We shape each other. And so it says that when we dwell in unity, it is like that oil. It's like we're all anointed and it's just dripping down, just like Aaron's head and hair and shoulders and robe. Because we're his anointed ones. And by the way, you can think poorly of a person. You can't think poorly of one of God's anointed. You just don't have the luxury. I'm sorry. Right. So that's number one. What about the do? <sighs> Geography lesson. You look at the area of Israel. Mount Hermon is at the very northern tip of, of Israel. Right? If you looked at, you know, you have the, the, the river and the, the Sea of Galilee, and then even north of that, you have Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is about 9,000 feet above sea level, and Mount Hermon is known, even to this day, Mount Hermon is known to have insane amounts of morning dew. If you're a climber or you've ever, you know, hiked in higher elevations, you know this. You have to worry about dew the higher you get, right? In the, in the morning, you'll wake up drenched, right? Dew, the higher you go up, the more it becomes a challenge, and and, and it was known the area around Mount Hermon would be lush all year round, even in the hottest of the heat of summer, because of the amount of dew that would come down from the mountain. Zion, Jerusalem, way other end. Jerusalem is just about 2,000 feet over sea level, and Mount Zion is bone dry in the summer. You can't get anything to grow there. It's not lush. There's no dew in the morning. You could sleep outside on the ground and you probably wouldn't even wake up with any bit of moisture going on. Right. In the summer, things don't spring up easily there. And so here, here's what the metaphor is saying. What if, let's imagine for a second, if Herman's dew levels showed up in Zion's territory. What if, what, if, what if this level of, of dew and, and the life that it brings and the growth and the vegetation uh, in, in the hottest of the summer days, what if that somehow just were to transport itself all the way from the northern to the southern end and, and descend and rest on Mount Zion? And so what does it say? It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So unity is just like that. And what's he telling us? He's telling us that unity is marked by an expectation of newness in one another and in the church that we're a part of. When we're united together, we look at one another and we look at one another with a great fondness and an expectation. If you had young children growing up the way I do now, every once in a while I just catch myself staring at my kids and I just, I wonder what they're going to turn out like. I'm not talking about in like a Graham is spinning himself dizzy and I wonder if he's going to graduate from college kind of way. I'm talking like in a, like, what, man, what is the Lord going to, the Lord's going to do something crazy and great with you. Wow, what? I can't wait to see what that is. Man. Look at Erin and the amount of smiling that she does. She smiles more than any other human I know, which is just a blessing to us. But I look at her and I go, man, you are going to just bring joy to thousands of people someday. I don't know how yet, but it's, it, there, there is a potential energy within you that the Lord is going to unleash, and, and how great. See, we do this naturally with our kids, but we don't do this naturally with ourselves. But here's the reality. If we are saints and we are anointed, 
the Lord is doing a new thing in us every morning. Imagine just the potential energy that exists within this room and the believers that are sitting in it. Think of the, the people that God has used over the centuries and millennia where he's used one person to do something great and it's not because they were powerful but because God used them. Imagine someone like David who was an adulterous murderer but the Lord used him to, to build this kingdom and to strengthen it in a way that no one had really before. And that, as, as anointed saints, that is a potential that, that rests in each and every one of us. There, there could be a hundred Davids in this church. And when we walk in here together, whether that's on a Sunday or in a Bible study, if, we ought to live with that expectation that the Lord is going to do something. Peterson puts it really well. A community of faith flourishes when we view each other with this expectancy. Wondering what God will do today in this one and that one. We are in community with those Christ loves and redeems. We're constantly finding out new things about them. They are new persons each morning, endless in their possibilities. We explore the fascinating depths of their friendship. We share the secrets of their quest. It is impossible to be bored in such a community. Impossible to be alienated, to feel alienated. Among such a people. Imagine for a second if all of us at Stoprez started to see each other as saints with unlimited potential for newness. If we as a church woke up every day and just said, man, God's going to do something with, with this member or that visitor or that staff person or that deacon or that elder or that team member or that singer that's on stage. He's going to, man, I can't wait to see what he does. And we actually looked at each other that way. Not because of how awesome we are, but because of how awesome the God that we serve and empowers us is. I, could, I can't wait to see what would happen in a church that starts to take that seriously. If we could allow each other to function in a priestly way, to be honest and real with one another, and that if on top of that we could actually be excited about the newness. I look at this church, and I tell you this, I joined this church, and then I came on staff at this church, and then I answered the call to be the pastor of this church because in the people in it, I saw a potential energy of what the Lord could do with this place in this area and the limitlessness of what could, what could happen if the people of God picked up his word and read it and took it seriously and decided to move forward and to love each other with abandon. I don't know about you, but that is the reason I am here. The only reason I'm here, because I can't wait to see what the Lord does with that. And when I come in here on Sunday morning and I see your faces, I don't just see so-and-so who's married to so-and-so and so-and-so -so whose son was in the hospital. I see an unlimited potential of, of, of God's goodness being able to work itself out and something new springing up as the Lord continues to make each and every one of us individually and corporately new every morning. Right? So if verse 1 is the what... Verse 2 to 3 is the how. Then the final verse, half of the verse 3, is the why. Why ought we to be in such a good and pleasant unity? Why should we be priestly one another? Why should we see each other as new every morning with endless potential? Because that is where the Lord commands the blessing. Right? When we're in unity, for there, in the midst of this unity, as we live it out, is where the Lord commands the blessing. And the blessing is what? Life forevermore. If you want a glimpse of heaven, 
Let's strive above all else to be in Christian unity together. And I can promise you, and God does promise you, that there's nothing like it. But unity takes work. The answer of heaven and eternal life isn't just the why, it's also the answer to how we get there. It's not by accident that if you look at this psalm, the metaphors are all metaphors of things that are descending. The oil descends down the head. The dew descends down the mountain and drenches and and causes things to grow. Uh, Derek Kidner has, has has a good quote. He points out this. He says, true unity, true unity, not the fleeting kind, but the true unity, like all of God's gifts, is from above. It's bestowed rather than contrived. It's a blessing far more than it is an achievement. And so what we see here is that the source of of the blessing is when we live in unity, but it's also the thing that causes us to be able to do it. The Lord himself is what permits us to be in unity with one another. Unity, especially at this level, comes only in, through, and by God himself. It comes by God and that he's the one who bestows it on us and created it. God made unity. It's by him. It comes through God in that only through his spirit can we sustain it. Here's the thing. We naturally are going to want to be at each other's throats. We're going to want to not give each other the benefit of the doubt. We're going to want to see the worst in each other. We're going to want to just not show up here because I just don't want to get out of bed. Because I just don't see the importance of me being there every week. Why does it really matter? I just want to sleep. For those that think that, I should start teaching lessons and just like randomly pick like four Sundays a year to just sleep in and not tell anybody and not show up (laughs) and just see what happens. Not call any elders, but just not come. That'd be great. I could take an extra Sunday vacation. I could blame it on a lesson, on an object lesson. I'd love that, right? But it comes through God and that he is the way, his spirit enables us to actually sustain unity. We have to go against our nature to live in unity with one another. It takes hard work, and the only way that we can do it is through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, heaven co- unity comes only in God insofar that we can't have this unity around anything else. And this is my final point. We, the, the, the problem that we have as, as people in the world today is that we try to do this. We try to create unity around things other than God. And when we do that, things start to go very south. It doesn't last. Think of the amounts of unifying things around the world. I, I mentioned September 11th earlier. Uh, the reason I mentioned September 11th is because when that happened, There was a brief period after, and it's a tragedy. I'm not saying this in any way that this was a good thing. But one of the the kind of little tiny nuggets of good that birthed out of of the evil and tragedy of that day was that there was like probably, I'm going to give it like three months, where our country was united. Like fully. Man, we were all on the same page for a couple months. Then we started fighting about where we shouldn't and shouldn't go to war and who we shouldn't or shouldn't go after and what we should or shouldn't do and who we should or shouldn't elect. And they all had be- and we went back to the bickering, the fighting, and slowly over time. But here's the reason I mention this. A cataclysmic event so big as that event, more than 20 years ago now, 
created probably some of the largest unity our nation has ever seen in our generation, at least in my generation. But it's been less than 20 years. And, and I gotta tell you, I don't really see any traces of that unity left in the country that we are in today. I see division and chaos and hatred and slander and power grabbing. I don't really see a whole lot of unity. And so here's the thing, no matter how cataclysmic of an event in this world, no matter how great of a cause, no matter how big of a thing we try to create unity around, none of it actually is sustaining and lasting other than unity around God. Unity is useless unless you are united in and around a right and a lasting thing. And the only lasting thing that I can think of is God. Here's what, here's what is in John 17, 20 through 23. This is part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may, be all, they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. They may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Unity only works lastingly, permanently, beautifully, good and pleasantly, if it is centered around the one who is eternal and permanent and all-loving and all-good and all-sufficient and all-knowing. If we try to unite around other things, it won't work. It just won't work. Unity makes a terrible end. It is a means to an end, not an end in itself. I don't like to talk about this a lot, but I, I remember, um, you know, this was a church that years and years ago left the PCUSA. Uh, and and I, I'm not trying to talk badly about the PCUSA or anything, but just a kind of a historical recap. Um, in the midst of kind of the big exodus when a lot of churches were doing that, I was an intern at Memorial Park, a really large church in Pittsburgh, uh, right as they were processing through leaving themselves. And they were going through court battles about property and all these, all these things, and it kind of got really ugly because they were the first, like, really big church in Pittsburgh in that presbytery to try to, to, to leave the PCUSA. And, and we have all kinds of things about, you know, the PCUSA leaving was about sexuality or about other things. Here's what it was really about. It was about this idea that we're talking about today. Because when Memorial Park tried to leave, one of the arguments against leaving, and it still kind of stands today, leaving that denomination was, well, what about the preservation of unity? The churches shouldn't leave because they should, if we leave, that's a split. And if we split, we don't have unity. And we need to be, we need to have unity. Unity, unity, unity. That word got thrown around. I swear, I was reading papers and sitting in meetings. And, you know, I had, I had beautiful mentors that let me sit in on these things. And I, I, the word, I was so tired of the word unity by the end of it. Because that just seemed to be the only thing that kept getting thrown around. And, and, and one of the, the pastors there was talking about this. And he gave me the greatest rebuttal. And, and, and for me, this is what it convinced me at the time to be on board with, with the leaving. And it was this. He said this. Unity, just for unity's sake, is harmful. If we build a massive tent and invite everyone into it <clears throat> so that we're united, but we can't agree on what tent pole to use, the whole thing will come collapsing down and kill us all. There is no point to unity unless it is around something concrete, everlasting, standing that we can unite ourselves around. And the only thing truly worthy of uniting around is Christ. 
anything else is a tent pole that will break one day. And if you build the unity in your life, if you try to unite around other things, they will falter, they will fail. The only unity worth it, the only time that it's worth it is as a means to the end. And the means is unity, and the end is Christ. The end, the end that we aim for, the reason we stand united together is so that one day we can all be in the presence of God's throne in the new Jerusalem, singing glory to his name forever, all of our knees bowed, all of our tongues confessing, and that we live without fear and pain and hopelessness and sin and death and all of these things. That is the aim we have, and the way that we get there is by pushing hard for unity, and it takes a mountain of work to get there. So the question to have before we close today is, what do we do? What are you going to do? You member, number whatever, a regular attender or first-time visitor, if this is your first time, I'm sorry, I'm lecturing you, right? What are you going to do, not just to protect and to keep, but to actively build the unity of God's people in this church? Because you have a role in it. As a matter of fact, you have just as big of a role in it as I do. I don't care that I'm getting paid to be here, that this is my job, my vocation, my calling. You have as equal of a role in building and growing and preserving and fighting for the unity of this church as I do, as the elders do, as the staff do, as the deacons do, as the leaders and Bible study leaders do. You as a member, as a regular attender, if you're here that is your job. So what are you going to do? What are you doing? Are you showing up even when it's inconvenient? Because you know it's important that we need to dwell together as God's people, to rub up against one another, to know one another, to love one another, to care for one another. Are you practicing looking at the people in this, in this building as priests and not just people that you kind of tolerate until you get to go home? the people you're truly called to love as your own family, as your actual true brothers and sisters? Because what do we say? There's no only children. In the world of Christ? Are you investing and strengthening the bond of fellowship with one another? Are you enfolding new people in deeper ways? Are you doing, are you taking it upon yourself to make sure newer people in this church become older people in this church? That they're not just waved at on a Sunday morning, you find out who they are, what their kids' names are, and what they do, and if they're gonna tithe, but you actually are investing in their lives. Right? When we see new people come in here, we should be investing in their lives. I'm, let me tell you this. If a person visits our church more than three times and someone in this building, a member, not a staff person because it's their job, but a member, if someone has visited three times and a member hasn't invited them to a meal somewhere out or home or coffee, we're not doing it right. That's us not having done our jobs. Right? It shouldn't be. No one should come here and be a part of this community for more than three weeks in a row without having been enfolded. So what are you doing to create the unity, to build one another? It takes work, hard, tedious work, and it's worth it for us. And the question is, is it worth it to you to taste what God calls good and pleasant? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you've given us this gift Not this building, not the ministries, not the, not the staff, not still Presbyterian, but that you've given us this, this fellowship of saints. Lord, on a, on a, on a Sunday, after a week of, of hardship and, and labor on the mission field, we can come and be amongst our brothers and our sisters. 
Lord, even if all the, the music failed and, and the mics didn't work and the live stream cut out and all we got to do is just sit in this room in a circle together and, and read some scripture and talk and be with each other and it would be exactly what you've called us to be and do. It's the unity and the love of our people and not the structure of it that, that strengthens us. Lord, we, we ask and we pray that you would empower us to be about your business of uniting as a people. That we would be fierce about loving that unity and protecting it, investing in it, growing in it, not just partaking of it. Lord, help us understand that we all fill the puzzle pieces that build the unity of this church. This place, this one geographic expression of your church that you've called together and named Stoprez. And we look forward to the time that we get to dwell in unity with not just the saints here, but the saints all across the globe and across time as we lift your name high. Be with us. Be with us as we go out this week. Lord, we, we ask that you would lay on our heart individuals in this church that we need to spend some time investing in. Let there be more lunch invitations after church today than there ever have been before. Lord, we pray for those that maybe we haven't seen in a while who are, who are a part of this church, but, but maybe slightly disconnected. We pray for those who have gotten used to having church in their PJs, and we pray that you would spur them on to be here, or that one of us would be spurred on the call and invite them back. That you would allow us to know that church isn't something that you log into, but that you invest in and are a part of. Thank you for this gift, this unifying gift of the church and the foretaste of heaven that it gives us when we gather. Lord, how good and pleasant it is to be with the saints, the anointed priests of Stowe Presbyterian Church. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said...